Hello, and welcome to this episode of Back to Fundamentals, the Energy Aspects podcast. And today's episode will be focused on geopolitics. My name is Yasser El-Gindi, Head of Macro Energy, and I will be hosting today's discussion. With me is Richard Bronze, our cross-energy analyst, and Daniel Sternoff, our Head of Macro Content. Today, we want to explore the key geopolitical events that we think will be meaningful for the energy complex in the coming months. We saw two weeks ago that OPEC did agree to extend its cuts by one month, that uh, the historic agreement from last April. However, that bit of news was overshadowed somewhat by news uh, that same weekend that Libya's elephant and Sharara oil fields we're coming back on stream. That's some 380,000 barrels a day of production combined um, that, that, that we're in the process of restarting. So Rich, let me start with you. After being shut for over a year now, is, is Libyan production coming back? Well, um, it's, it's certainly since January we had the big shut-in and everything was offline. And that was all tied up with uh, Khalifa Haftar, the kind of warlord general in the East, and a big advance that he had been attempting to make uh, to pressure the government in Tripoli. He'd been trying to take Tripoli for over a year, uh, but with limited success. And that's particularly because the, the government in Tripoli was basically getting backing and support from Turkey. And that seems to have turned the tide, at least in the short term, on the ground. So that... Uh, Haftar's advance has ended, and in fact, he's been in retreat in recent weeks. And part of that has opened up some some possibility uh, of a partial restart of Libyan production. But as we've already seen, this is far from straightforward. There are numerous groups um, who can take the opportunity as assets come back online to shut them, to essentially extort money or promises of jobs out of the, the National Oil Company, NOC. And also, we're only looking at a possible restart from, as you say, two, two main fields down in the southwest. The rest of Libyan onshore production, about six, 700,000 barrels a day, is over in the east. That's still under the control of Haftar and the eastern government. And there's very, very little reason for them to consider reopening that when the revenue uh, from any sales would just flow into Tripoli and into the central bank, which is under the control of their rivals. So there's still a lot of fighting. Uh, the position on the ground is still shifting, but also fundamentally, the kind of instability and complex factional politics that has dominated Libya ever since the revolution in 2011 is still very much holding. Daniel, if I could draw you in on this, because it seems that this is more than just a very specific local Libyan issue. We've got both Russia and Turkey and other countries in the region with, with stakes. What, what are the politics driving this? Well, the regional politics have been something that have clearly inflamed uh, the civil war and have also caused the uh, turn in the tide of the war for now, and which will be very important to see whether this will settle down in ways that might allow the restoration of production or not. So specifically, um, very clearly defined regional uh, uh, proxy battles. Heftar and the East, supported by the UAE and Egypt, who have been very opposed to the Muslim Brotherhood-aligned political Islamist factions that have been ruling Tripoli, 
uh, in 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 the West, Tripoli and the and the city of Misrata, uh, also backed by the Russians, who for separate reasons uh, have been have been backing the Eastern forces. Uh, this led to an increase in support, mercenaries and money and arms over the past year. The backing of Heftar, who launched his offensive to take Western Libya uh, a little more than a year ago. And at the end of the day, Haftar stalled. Uh, he was not able to translate military gains into a stronger diplomatic hand and overreached uh, even to the consternation of his external backers. And uh, his overreach brought in the Turks, who intervened heavily the end of last year, the beginning of this year, bringing in Syrian uh, uh, mercenaries. And uh, this Turkish intervention has been very decisive in terms of drones and anti-aircraft defenses and manpower. And they have now forced all of uh, these losses by Heftar, who has been pushed into a very messy withdrawal and a lot of embarrassment to his foreign backers. Um, There's a couple of things about where we go from here. I think first, there are clear signs that Haftar's backers are trying to find a way to maneuver him out of political authority in the East uh, in favor of the head of the Eastern Parliament, the House of Representatives, a guy named Aguila Sala, who has been trying to put out feelers for a new uh, peace initiative that can recreate uh, some kind of a political process with wide-ranging autonomy for the different regions. Heftar is uh, down but not completely out, and so there's a question of political legitimacy in the East. And meanwhile, in the West, uh, it seems that certain factions of the GNA aligned with the Turks are uh, going for broke militarily now. They are not interested in any ceasefire talks right now until they push to reclaim more territory, and why not? You should uh, take advantage of your opponent when they're when they're in flight. And so the, the 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 GNA forces are trying to retake to push along the coastal road to take the town of Search, which is the gateway to the Oil Crescent, as well as a key airbase called Ajufra, which would open up the capacity to control uh, southwestern Libya. I think we are not yet at a point where the external actors are ready to cut a deal. Uh, There isn't an interest in the West to go to ceasefire talks now. And in the East, I think at the end of the day, the Egyptians, the Emiratis, even if it is not Haftar, they will be strongly opposed to the figures in Tripoli and those that the Turks are backing. And so uh, we're, we're, we're just at another uh, phase of this war rather than uh, at, at its conclusion. So it's safe to, to assume that we're still in a highly fluid situation that is just at the beginning of a political process as opposed to the end. I, I, I think that's right. And, go ahead, Rich. Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely right. I think I think in terms of production, uh, we may be entering a phase where there's some partial return, but it will be volatile. But I think the issue here is there are very few uh, actors, either internally uh, with with genuine power or externally in terms of international backers, who are pushing for some kind of meaningful uh, compromise that brings together the parties. 
processes that have tried that have really stalled and failed. And instead, you've got uh, very much a zero-sum game where even if one side can't hope to win or kind of you take the whole country, their next best thing is just to block or damage the interests of the other side. And, and the, the Tripoli government's dependence now on Turkey uh, and its support, including those Syrian mercenaries that Daniel mentioned, has only kind of added to and in, you know, worsened and deepened the kinds of um, divisions and, and the political obstructionism uh, that I think that is going to keep uh, preventing kind of meaningful diplomacy beyond just using it to try and regroup and balance, rebalance power when one side is, is on the retreat. That's great. Thanks, guys. I'm going to pivot here, um, but staying within this theme of things that could potentially uh, overshadow an, the OPEC plus uh, agreement. And specifically, you know, with all the turmoil in the U.S., I think a lot of people have started to turn their attention to the upcoming U.S. elections and what a potential Biden presidency might mean for the oil markets. And specifically, um, can we expect uh, sanctions against Iran uh, to be undone once Biden takes over? Um, Daniel, can you comment on that? Yes, I can. And obviously the, the poll numbers have been turning in Biden's favor over the last couple of weeks. Uh, his camp is certainly not yet measuring drapes for the White House. Uh, but they are uh, making plans already for a potential transition uh, should they be taking power next January. And that absolutely includes a lot of thinking around uh, Iran. Um, the core national security team around Biden includes many who negotiated the original JCPOA. And so they are familiar, deeply familiar with the issues. They are familiar with... Uh, all of the diplomatic counterparts and the Iranians, and they clearly want to go back in uh, to uh, stabilize a situation that uh, has not been made safer in terms of caps on the Iranian nuclear program as a consequence of the reimposition of sanctions. There's no question that they will want to begin a diplomatic initiative. I think at the same time, they completely recognize that what Trump has done uh, cannot just be undone. There is no going back to the nuclear deal as it was for a whole host of reasons, uh, nor is there even a desire to, because they were always aware that there were flaws in the agreement that they negotiated in terms of many of the sunsets on uh, Iranian activity that would begin to roll off. The fact it didn't include uh, a component dealing with Iranian ballistic missiles, and it sort of left aside the questions of the regional context. And they realize that uh, to start a negotiation, the, the end goal needs to be something that is uh, both puts a more durable uh, cap on the Iranian program, but also can contribute to regional stability. And they are thinking in terms of what can you offer that is a, quote, more for more uh, approach? And that means more means uh, something that could be a treaty that passes the U.S. Senate, meaning the Iranians would have to give even more on their nuclear program in order to 
uh, prevent anyone from rolling it back. And in exchange, this may require uh, finding ways to create even greater incentives or benefits uh, to the Iranians to give them stability. I think they're under no illusions that that will happen quickly and I, uh, or that the Iranians will be easy to work with. And so this is not something that will move in a few months after taking power uh, at the beginning of 2021. Uh, but I think they also know that in order to get into a negotiation, you probably have to give the Iranians some incentive to come to the table. And so here, I think we may very well be back pushing ideas that were floated largely by the French uh, in the middle of last year, whereby could you have some form of waivers or credit lines that are enabling the Iranians to get some economic benefits or to put some you know, moderate volumes on the market uh, as, as part of a, a phase one uh, agreement in order to then get to the table for a longer negotiation. So there certainly is a possibility that uh, we'll get into a place where bottled up Iranian volumes uh, can start to come back to the market. And a couple of a couple of things from the Iranian side that that I'd kind of add. One is timing wise. We've got to remember that there'll be an Iranian presidential election in 2021, probably around May. Um, Rouhani, uh, the kind of more pragmatist, moderate, if you want, president, uh, can't stand again. In any way, his support has really weakened because of the economic problems Iran has faced since Trump reimposed sanctions. So that team on the Iranian side, Rouhani, Zarif as the foreign minister who were doing the negotiating, they're going to be replaced. The signs at the moment suggest it's going to be a more hardline president, just as the hardline has made big gains in the Iranian parliamentary elections this year. Um, so there's a sequencing question. I think you're absolutely right, Daniel. You know, the U.S. probably needs to offer something in the way of waivers or, or some kind of uh, offering to begin and open the process. Um, but do you do that in the final months of one president or do you wait and see the outcome of that election and then try and open talks with a new? Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, the Iranians are going to see if Biden is in the White House, probably an opportunity to... Uh, to begin negotiations, their economy is suffering. They do want, and I think they they will be ready to move uh, to get the, a deal. But they are going to negotiate hard. And I think what you said, the the you know it being a treaty, it being something that gets ratified, and it has that kind of formality, is going to be a red line because the whole problem they found with the JCPOA was it only relied on presidential authority. So Trump came into office and he could undo and reverse all the things that Obama had done. And they didn't, the Iranians didn't have any protection. Uh, they, you know, they really felt that. Uh, and so they want to see something which involves, even if it's a multi-year process, a path to genuine removal or lifting of sanctions on a permanent basis. And I think that could eventually be quite a big, as you say, more for more deal. Uh, but it's going to be a long and difficult road to get there. But for the oil market, yes, you probably could see an opening salvo or early early step in confidence building, which includes more limited return of Iranian volumes. You know, w one of the things that I think has been somewhat overlooked or maybe taken for granted is, is, is the better word, is that in, in the last couple of years, yes, Saudi and Russia have had unprecedented cooperation um, in, in shepherding the, the various iterations of OPEC plus, 
But at the same time, the organization has benefited deeply from the supply losses in, uh, in Iran, in Libya, in Venezuela. And given the latest uh, focus on compliance, right? The Saudis went way out of their way to emphasize deeper compliance um, and conformity. H how are these challenges going to affect or possibly disrupt this uh, seeming romance between the, the leadership of Saudi and Russia going forward? It's a it's a great question. I'll, I'll, I'll give a few thoughts, then maybe Daniel can come in. I think, you know, if you just look at our balances, you can almost make the case because we, we've got big draws late this year. We've got even you know, big draws through next year. Actually, you kind of need more supply from somewhere. And some of these geopolitical disruptions easing um, because of some kind of political development or movement next year could be helpful. But it absolutely throws a big spanner into the works in terms of Saudi-Russian efforts to keep all of the OPEC plus countries on the straight and narrow in terms of compliance and to burden share. And we know for Saudi Arabia in particular, that's an absolute uh, requirement. And it's a huge source of frustration each time they see the Iraq or Nigeria or Kazakhstan under complying. They want to crack the whip and they really want to find a way to bring them back into line. But if you've got Iran or you've got Venezuela raising production, say, um, even Libya, you know, outside of the deal, the debate will be how long do we let this happen before we bring them back in? And how do we make, do we need to make space for that uh, increase? Or can the market bear it as well as this, you know, this plan that goes on under the OPEC plus deal to gradually raise production and lift the quota ceiling? But there'll always be pressure from OPEC plus members that need cash to to rush that, to bring more, to loosen the restrictions sooner, if the mark, you know, if they can means they can sell more barrels. Rich, if I could jump in and bring a slightly different angle to the question of Saudi-Russian relations beyond how are they managing uh, oil balances in OPEC politics, and that is that we may be moving into a very different geopolitical orientation in the region. And this is particularly the case if Biden wins the election in the U.S. Uh, Biden has been extremely critical of Mohammed bin Salman over the Khashoggi affair. And otherwise, there's been a huge deterioration in Saudi's position in Washington, not only among Democrats, but many Republicans from oil states uh, who have been a firewall against moves to restrict the U.S.-Saudi arms relationship or support over, over, over Yemen, all of that has been growing. And, and if Biden is pivoting towards negotiations with the Iranians and cooling on Saudi at a time the U.S. strategic footprint is pivoting towards Asia, this, this is leaving the Saudis in a more vulnerable position regionally. And the question will be, where does this take Riyadh? And who do they look to? And I think in part, this will uh, redouble MBS's focus on domestic reforms to have their economic house in order. Uh, it may also deepen his uh, quiet outreach to the Israelis in an anti-Iranian orientation. But it may also lead to opportunities for Putin to be deepening what is not only 
in 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 oil management relationship with Saudi Arabia, but a strategic opportunity, and a so this is something where we could see those strategic and geopolitical relations will then color the way in which oil price management uh, occurs and. Uh, that I think is something that we're, we're going to need to watch very closely because this could be one of the most challenging regional environments for Saudi as what has been the bedrock relationship with the U.S. is simply uh, shifting in ways that, uh, that, that may not return. Certainly a lot of headwinds for OPEC plus going forward. Uh, Daniel Rich, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts this week. That concludes this week's episode of Back to Fundamentals. We look forward to hearing from you again next week.